the stories. Be motivated. Be inspired. Join us today. Voice America Influencers. Welcome to The Art of Significance with your host, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, university professor, gold record songwriter, and award-winning athlete, Dan Clark. Get ready for engaging discussions with some of the most influential people in the world who will impart their wisdom, stories, and inspiration on why and how to achieve the level beyond success. Now here's your host, Dan Clark. How's everybody doing? Gosh, it's been a week. I sure appreciate you tuning in. Analytics showed a couple weeks ago we had people from 18 countries tune into our show. And uh, the listener list is growing. Continuously share this with your friends. Please check me out on danclark.com. Join my tribe. Click on receive free gifts and training. Kind of stay tuned on everything I've got going and some of the free programs I'm offering. Today's show, I think, has got to be one of the more timely and special shows that I've done since I've been on the air. Yesterday was September 11th, the 16th anniversary of that horrific day when America was attacked by 19 um, religious zealots who uh, wanted to teach us a lesson. And the most interesting thing about that is, is that it came in the aftermath of the horrific flooding and disaster caused by Hurricane Harvey in the Houston, Texas area, immediately followed by Hurricane Irma, who is still pounding. She's still pounding Florida and uh, the southeastern and mid-eastern United States. So I thought it would be very, very important today to just have two guests to occupy the entire two hours. First guest is a dear, dear friend, as all my guests are, Bubba Johnson, who is the safety officer at NASA Space Center in Houston. So he's experienced the entire Hurricane Harvey disaster, and he's part of the recovery. We'll ask him as an eyewitness to give us the account of what's going on. And give us some insight on, on, on NASA, on the state of NASA and what's going on. And then immediately following him in the second hour, I've got General Don Alston back for the third time. And he's going to help us understand the significance of September 11th. Because it's the 16th anniversary yesterday of this horrific event, September 11th, 2001, there are so many of our listeners, there are so many young people in our, in our country who have no recollection. They weren't even alive. They have no no feeling for the horrific, and I've said that three times, for for the the the, the unbelievable uh, feelings that we all experienced that day when we were under attack and the subsequent days afterwards. So General Alston, I'm going to ask him about talking to us about, you know, what led up to September 11th, why we were attacked, how we countered the attack, why and when we went to Iraq, what's happening in Afghanistan, the update on ISIS, and especially on this crazy man in North Korea. And interesting that Don Alston, General Alston, retired two-star general, is a one-stop shop. I love this man. He is a walking encyclopedia of military history and military experience. And Bubba 
is just an unbelievable human being <clears throat> who sees things um, from behind the scenes and has that innate ability to read between the lines. Having said that, let me just set the tone for the entire day by reiterating a quote that I have, which is one of my more famous quotable quotes. Pain is a signal to grow, not to suffer. Once we learn the lesson the pain teaches us, the pain goes away. So in life, there's no mistakes, only lessons. Are you with me? And that brings up a very, very interesting discussion about stress. And what I want to do is just set the tone quickly before we bring Bubba on to talk to him about Houston and the Harvey hurricane. But we need to welcome and regulate our stress. Does that seem odd? Because we're going to talk about the stress caused by September 11th and the obvious stress caused by Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. But here's my question. Have you ever noticed how some people, even the best players who practice and practice and become brilliant at the basics, still choke come game time? Do you know anyone who has stretched from the inside out and has truly become more of who they already are, and yet when it comes time to perform and show what they can do, they fold under pressure taking a school test, undergoing a corporate exam, or planning a big game? Why do you think this happens? Have you noticed how stress even affects some right leaders, coaches, employees, and players, but seemingly not others? Why do you think this occurs? When the external circumstance is the same for everybody, competing and involved, in my mind, in my experience, it is clear that talent and experience don't explain differences in performance. The one and only thing we can control is stress. So think about it. Pain is a signal to grow, not to suffer. We know that. But in another one of my quotes, pressure is not something that is naturally there. It's created when you question your own ability. And when you know what you've been trained to do, there's never any pressure. There's never any question. So pressure is not stress. The internal impact that stress has on an individual physically and mentally varies greatly among individuals and plays a huge role in performance level. In competition, stress is the only thing that can be controlled to a high degree. Are you with me? What we need to understand then is that stress and performance are always linked. Stress facilitates performance. I wish I could show you this diagram that I refer to in my speeches when I talk about stress. It's a well-known Yerkes-Dodson law. And it's a diagram that I challenge you to look up because what it explains is that too little stress causes weak performance. However, too much stress is debilitating. Peak performance comes as we seek balance. We must seek the optimal level of stress. Surely we're all different in how much stress we can handle. And the goal is to push ourselves to our highest degree of intensity so that we may perform at our ultimate capacity and reach our full potential. But how will we know when we have gone past the level of optimal stress? It's about the simple law of diminishing returns. We can water a tomato plant only so much. At full capacity, when the plant needs no more water, additional watering only diminishes its growth. Once the water level reaches an optimal level, the effectiveness of water quickly diminishes and eventually kills or drowns the tomato plant. Can any of you relate? Let's talk for a second about when stress is bad, especially PTS, because we have so many 
of our wonderful military veterans, our active duty, our reserve, our guards, guardsmen, guardswomen listening in on this program. Let me talk to you. If you're worried about your health, stop. (laughs) Worry only makes it worse. Warning signs of pushing ourselves past the optimal level of stress include heartburn, appetite changes, irritable bowel, itchy skin, nervous habits such as nail biting, talking way too fast, I guess I'm under stress, and way too much, insomnia, headaches, chest pain, decreased libido, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and an increase in drug and alcohol use. Can any of you relate? Have you identified any of those? Performance-related signs are even more obvious and noticeable, including decreased concentration, excuse me, resulting in increased errors. And because these conditions drain our energy, Stress simultaneously tells other, cost, tells other costly physical processes, including digestion, reproduction, physical growth, and some aspects of the immune system to shut down or slow down, making us more susceptible to illnesses ranging from the common cold to cancer. Chronic stress has been linked to heart disease, strokes, depression, type 2 diabetes, and like I said, post-traumatic stress Disorder, and I throw that word in disorder so I can disclaim it right now. Post traumatic stress, commonly referred to as PTS, is a condition that can affect any of us at any point in our lives. For this reason, we should know what it is and what it isn't. The newest science reveals it is not a syndrome, nor is it a disorder. Psychiatrists and therapists now call it post-traumatic stress because it is exactly that, stress, which is our body's and mind's mechanism that alerts us to situations we feel we should avoid. Bottom line, PTS is a natural reaction to a traumatic experience that we can't stop remembering that causes us to tense up, tear up, or go quiet because of the fear of having to live through it again. Are you with me? Many of us will experience individual traumatic events ranging from car and airplane accidents to sexual assault and domestic violence to natural disasters such as Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, even being attacked on September 11th. Earthquakes, Mexico is suffering. Many of us experience individual traumatic events that range from cartilage, ligaments, ligament damage that continually nags us. And yes, that's not quite as serious, but when you think about it, it ties into PTS as an injury. We must look at PTS from now on and forevermore as an injury, not as a disorder, a syndrome, which means with the correct therapy and rehabilitation, we can always recover from an injury even PTS. In fact, in my experience with pain and injury, and you think about it, I've had my head sewn up 11 times. I've broken my neck, my nose, jaw, right arm, left wrist, all bones in my left hand, both thumbs, both pinky fingers have had two hernias. <clears throat> That's funny, two hernias. And my appendix burst in the hospital. I battled throat cancer, snapped both patella tendons, severed my left Achilles tendon, and have torn the cartilage and ligaments in my left ankle and both knees all in all, requiring a total of surgeries and plaster casts. What's my point, my friends? Every single time I've been injured, I have fully recovered. And because I religiously followed and obeyed the time-tested rehabilitation program prescribed for me, 
the injured part of my body became stronger than it was before the injury, including my broken heart. We can recover from hurricanes. We can recover from earthquakes. We can recover from natural disasters. We can recover from the attack on September 11, 2001. And did did we not, in fact, become a stronger country because we were attacked? Yeah. Don't you mess with America. And they didn't just attack buildings. They didn't attack a landmass. They attacked what we believe in. They attacked what we believe in. Not to be controversial, that just means that living in America does not make anybody an American. It does not make you an American. America is an ideal. It's a set of core values. It's a belief system. It's an experiment in self-government. And sure enough, when you have an experience, an experiment, and an experiment is part of that experience, you're going to fail a lot of times. So you've got to figure out a way to get back up, learn the lesson, and go again. Resiliency, dealing with stress in a positive way. Because PTS is currently affecting our veterans more than any single segment of our population, the most significant way we can serve our military is to help them engage in meaningful treatment options. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, roughly 22 veterans die each day by suicide particularly among young younger people who serve. So let's talk about when stress is good. Physical management of stress is about diet and exercise and rest. Cognitive management of stress, it's about reframing our stressors as challenges by changing our descriptive words from problem, which sounds insurmountable, to challenge, which says, bring it on, baby. You say, I can't. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, watch me. I can And the third kind of stress, which we now can make it good, is behavioral management of stress. And that really takes place when we understand the philosophy that it's easier to act your way into positive thinking than it is to think your way into positive action. The fastest way to reduce and eliminate stress is to stop procrastinating, plan, gather information, make decisions, acquire resources, and take action. Isn't that what we've had to do to overcome Hurricane Harvey? Isn't that what we're currently doing and we're going to have to do in the ongoing days to recover from Hurricane Irma? Absolutely. Let's eliminate all excuses and stop blaming and complaining. So as I lead into my guest, Bubba Johnson from NASA Space Center, and going to a commercial break beforehand so that we can get you to go and invite your friends and family members and co-workers to sit around the, the computers and listen in. Let me just challenge four myths of feeling and challenge five theories of action that I think cause more stress, more worry. They, they, they keep the PTS alive and we need to finally, once and for all, call them out and stop allowing these four myths of feeling and five theories of action to destroy our ability to get back up and go again and come back whenever we're knocked down. Four myths of feeling, I can make you feel good, I can make you feel bad. You can make me feel good, you can make me feel get bad. No, no, no. No one can make us feel any way other than the way we choose to feel. 
The only thing we're not in charge of is whether or not we're in charge of our attitude. We can't control the winds and the rains and the floods and the earthquakes and the attacks from enemy. But what we can do is control how we not react to them, but how we respond. And the five theories of action are what what holding us back. They are limiting beliefs. And I want to just throw them out right now, throw them under the bus, challenge your specific belief system, and then bring on my two guests for the remainder of our two-hour show to talk about how we take action and what we need to do next. Remember, you can't always control what happens, but you can always control what happens next. Five theories of action. Number one, it's not my job theory. These people refuse to exceed expectations or do anything beyond the call of duty, come early or stay late unless it's written in your contract or you receive overtime pay. That's ridiculous. If I'm stepping on your toes, hallelujah, because that's not what made America the greatest country on our planet. We've got to stop believing that it's not my job. Number two, the gene theory. It's hereditary. You can't do anything about your constitutional genetic makeup. You're stuck with a negative personality, bad temper, slow motor skills, and lack of imagination simply because your father's personality is negative or or you got it from your mother. This is ridiculous. The third theory of action, the astrology theory. You were born under a specific sign of the zodiac with specific planets and moons lined up. Therefore, this is your assigned personality, and the stars will control your destiny. This is shaky at best. Number five, the fifth theory of action that holds us back and really screws us up, especially when we start believing that these natural disasters are meant to be. Are you kidding me that 250,000 people died in the tsunami around Indonesia and Thailand because it was meant to be? Absolutely ludicrous. The meant to be theory, you have no free will, choice, or agency to affect the outcome of your life and destiny. You are merely a pawn in the chess game of our creator. Meant to be suggests that Princess Diana's death in an automobile accident, the hands of a drunken chauffeur was meant to be. And that John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife and sister-in-law died in a plane crash because his lack of flight training was meant to be? Two teenagers attempt suicide, one dies and one lives. Was that meant to be? Why build hospitals or call for an ambulance then? It doesn't matter what we do, the situation, circumstance, and outcome are meant to be? Absolutely not. Ludicrous. Believing in these four myths of feeling in five theories of action is ludicrous and serves only as a scapegoat to eliminate the stress of responsibility to deal with and recover from tragedy, disappointment, discouragement, depression, and failure. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. The stronger our belief in these myths and theories, the weaker our resolve is to do something about them to be resilient and bounce back and become stronger. Remember, as we go to break, I've been injured internally and externally, meaning my heart has been broken, my dreams have been shattered, and yes, my body, my physical body has been destroyed so many times. But because I went through the proper steps and prescribed steps of rehabilitation, the injured part of my body became stronger than it was before I injured it. We are a stronger nation because of September 11th. We will be stronger Texans, 
stronger servants, stronger in our, our commitment to serving those who cannot serve themselves as a result of Hurricane Harvey, as a result of Hurricane Irma, as a result of this earthquake eight point whatever on the Richter scale registered in Mexico, and any other thing that comes our way. It's not a, it's not a problem, ladies and gentlemen. It's a challenge. Bring it on. Because no matter what our past has been, we have a spotless future. The best is yet to be. Don't go anywhere. We have Bubba Johnson from NASA. He's the safety officer, very intelligent, highly educated. We're going to talk about NASA, but we're going to talk about exactly what has been going on in Houston as a result of Hurricane Harvey. Let's go to commercial break. This is Dan Clark, voiceamerica.com. The Influencers Channel will be back in a moment. the stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers i just got out of a meeting where the unbelievable dan clark was the keynote speaker he is clearly the most interesting man in the world he's been into space he reminded us to think bigger He's a primary contributor to those chicken soup books, and he inspired all of us to make our lives matter. He taught us how to deal with change like he had to when he had to recover from a paralyzing football injury. Everybody needs to hear his message on leadership and safety and how he turns last place NFL teams into Super Bowl champions. Call this number, 1-800-676-1121, and visit danclark.com. I'm busy and so is my family. Leftover pizza and unhealthy takeout isn't really doing it for us anymore. Just ask my bathroom scale. That all changed when I found Freshly. For less than $10 a meal, Freshly delivers six meals a week, always fresh, never frozen, prepared by top chefs and nutritionists using the best, freshest, gluten-free ingredients. The best part is the menu is always new and fresh, just like the food, and it only takes three minutes for me to prepare breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and there's no messy cleanup and no dishes. My family loves the choices and the taste and freshly delivers to my home and my office so I eat healthy all day, every day. If you're tired of the same old cardboard delivery and takeout, try out Freshly.com today and save $20 on your first order using coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Your taste buds and your scale will thank you. So save 20 bucks today with coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America Business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to The Art of Significance, featuring your host, Dan Clark. If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop Dan a line via email to danclark at xmission.com. 
Now back to the Art of Significance. Here again is Dan Clark. As promised, because this is the day after the 16th anniversary of September 11, 2001, when we were attacked by 19 terrorists, I want to... I want to make sure that the rest of this show is not only talking about what has happened and why we have suffered through Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, the attack on our country, but the resiliency piece of why America is still the greatest country on our planet because you knock us down seven times, we're going to get back up eight. So basically, in a nutshell, the episode description of this today's show is from NASA and hurricanes in, in Houston to 9-11 and terrorism. And my guests, they're going to share some stories, some experiences, some hard-learned lessons, and some vision for the future. Coming up in a moment will be the consequence strategic planner, Major General Don Alston, retired Air Force. And he's going to talk all about the past and the future of, of what's happening from a military perspective on our country But right now, as promised, I want to just go right to Houston. Elmer Bubba Johnson is one of my dearest friends, and we laugh and we cry together and we hug. And I watch him as a leader, not only in NASA, but a leader in our country in an organization called VPPPPPPA. I always have to get enough P's in there because it's the Volunteer uh, Protection I'll let you explain what the nine P's mean and the A's. Anyway, let me just read a little teeny bit more about about Bubba. Elmer Bubba Johnson graduated from Texas A&M University, go Aggies, in 1983 and went to NASA to work as an aerospace engineer and safety officer. Bubba worked on the space shuttle program creating the abort flight design and the mechanical subsystems that include Hatches, windows, seats, landing gear, tires, and brakes. As the occupational and institutional safety officer, Bubba currently serves as the chairman for the Region 6 VP Board of Directors, is a public safety liaison, and handles emergency response. Bubba will talk today about the devastation, I hope, bro, the devastation and the recovery from Hurricane Harvey, but before we go to the hurricane, I just want everybody to know, tell me who who the heck are you, man? Where did you grow up? How do you become a true Bubba, which is just a good old boy who loves America, apple pie, God, and the American dream? Dan, it's so great to hear from you again. You know, Dan and I have known each other for a long time. And it's it's one of those, we may go uh, two, three months without talking, and it's just like we are right now. It's just like we were together yesterday. Um, Dan, you're a great American, and I'm very proud to be on your show today. Thanks, uh, I was actually born in Houston, Texas. I've been here my entire life. I am a native Houstonian, a native Texan, and um, the, the, the closeness of where I grew up to NASA actually led me to want to be a part of, uh, of NASA and, and the space vision that we're steering for the country. I had, um, I had been um, just, you know, and if you go into a crowded room anywhere uh, in the state of Texas 
and just holler Bubba, half of the guys are going to turn around and look at you. <laughs> so uh, it's it's pretty common name here in Texas. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, I am not, I don't put on any pretenses. Um, my dad likes to introduce me as, you know, this is my son, Bubba. He went to Texas A&M. He's got a Bachelor of Science degree in aerospace engineering. So, yes, you can actually say you have met a rocket scientist named Bubba. <laughs> So uh, that, that's a little bit of the history. I got involved in the, in the space shuttle. I'm a space shuttle guy. I love the space shuttle. I spent a large part of my career on the space shuttle, and it was very, very rewarding. How old were you when President Kennedy says, we will go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it is hard? Do you remember that speech or a recording of that speech? I remember a recording of it. Uh, I want to say that was in 1963, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. So I was only uh, about uh, I'm gonna tell off of my age here. I was only three years old then, but I well, have seen that recording many times. And so was that was that played time and time again? Do you think in the early stages of NASA? How how did who conceived the idea of a returnable aircraft? Who, who who conceived the idea that we're instead of just shooting up on a Titan rocket or a or a Saturn rocket or or whatever the case may be, let's do a different let's let's go to a different system and see if we can return the merchandise back safely to Earth. I know you were part of that original thought process, weren't you? Right. That's 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 a very interesting question, Dan. The, the 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 idea, whenever the Apollo missions were going up to go to the moon, was just we're going to the moon, and if we brought anything back, it was just going to be rock samples or soil samples or something like that. When the space shuttle was designed and implemented, it was actually uh, put into place and designed to build the space station. That was its main thrust was to build the International Space Station, and if you look. Uh, if you Google it or look anywhere at a model of the space station, the segments of the space station are all about the same size. And interestingly enough, they're the same size as the payload bay of the space shuttle. So the idea of returning a vehicle back to land uh, for after going into space was brought forth due to uh, the, the desire to build the space station in, in, uh, in low Earth orbit. Interestingly enough, since the space shuttle has been retired, we are now looking at uh, ways to get to Mars or uh, maybe the moon first and then on to Mars or anyway, different uh, destinations uh, outside of low Earth orbit. And we are actually going back to the original design that was used, uh, similar design to what was used during Apollo. Uh, we are using many parts that were designed and tested uh, during the space shuttle program, but in a completely different uh, vehicle. Uh, we're no longer trying to return and land on a landing strip and, uh, in, in Florida or in California or wherever we need to. This, this vehicle will carry uh, astronauts uh, to wherever they need to go, be that Mars or wherever we decide and then return them home safely, much the same way they did in Apollo. They're going to land. Uh, they're going to land in the ocean in a capsule with parachutes, and be recovered that way, the same way they were during Apollo. So, Dan, you might say, what goes around comes around. 
we had the we had Apollo. We went to space shuttle, and now we're going to uh, a more Apollo-like vehicle. You know, it's so intriguing to me. You and I are from the same generation, and we had the Jetsons, and we had Flash Gordon, and these things are actually coming to fruition. It's and I've always been a big I've always been a big fan of of uh, of Warner Van Braun, who was the father of NASA. You know, he was so mm-hmm. instrumental in designing the correct rocket to take us to to the moon. And as I study him and his strong belief in God and a creator because of his understanding of physics and everything that goes throughout the the universe, the order that's obvious in the in the in in the universe. The thing that intrigues me is some of his greatest lectures were still focused on he believed way back in the day that we could make it to Mars. And now you're saying on my radio show, that's still a mission of NASA, that that's really a possibility? It is really a possibility, Dan. And and I, I fully expect it to happen. It may not happen in my career here, but I fully expect it to happen in the in the future for NASA. Well, let me ask you a, a, a question, because you and I are both men of faith, but when I had a chance to sort of the edge of space, and you've heard me tell my story going up in a U-2 spy plane, mm-hmm. it's a classified mission, but I can, I'd can i love to tell people that at 70,000 feet I, above the Earth's surface, I you can see two-thirds of the state of California. At 80,000 feet, you see mapped outlines of America, and at 90,000 feet, which is about 16 miles above the Earth's surface, you actually tear up and believe you can reach out and fit and touch the face of God. And one of the things that I that occurred to me while I was sitting there in the sounds of silence is that if we're the only ones here, this sure is a lot of waste of space. <laughs> You're exactly right, Dan. And while uh, I was, it, you know, I could see the black, I could sort of see the blue turn to black, and it was so. It was so incredible, Bubba. It was the most life-changing and spiritual experience I've ever had up to this point in my life. So do you think that as we travel to Mars that there's a possibility that we're not the only ones with an Earth someplace in this in this universe of ours? What's your gut on that? My 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 gut on that is and I am I am a man of faith just like you. I am also a scientist, and and you're exactly right. You look at the the universe out there and all of the different astrological bodies that are that are that are living in harmony together. Um, we cannot be the only ones out there. There's got to be some sort. It may not be uh, a Bubba and a Dan, you know, with two legs and two arms and a head, but there's some sort of life has to exist out there. And it's just a matter of us, um, I hate to say stumble upon it, but we could discover it when we're actually just trying to discover the universe itself. So, my sound engineer, Kevin, who's the professional taking care of us, (laughs) he hosts the show and he talks to people who have had, you know, encounters with UFOs, so to speak, or the, the unexplained, since we're there right now, Bubba, what... Have you ever heard stories wandering the halls of the NASA Space Center there in Houston of of, a, of an astronaut flying his you know his T thirty eight his his private jet or or cruising around? Have you ever heard any stories where someone says you won't believe what I think I saw? You know when when I personally no Dan I have not but I do 
know after talking to a lot of the uh, my mentors when I first came here that were that were here during Apollo that when man first went into orbit in the early Gemini missions, they would see things outside the window that that couldn't be explained. Um, obviously, we didn't have the photographic capabilities that we have now, and some of those images were very difficult to capture. Uh, but there were there was talk in a lot of the early Gemini missions when we were first getting out into the into the Earth's orbit and out of the atmosphere. Uh, they were they were seeing things that they couldn't explain. Now, since then, we have sent many people, still a relatively small number of people, but many people into space. And, you know, it's a really tight-knit group over there, those astronauts. Um, and, you know, firsthand, no, I have not heard anybody say that. But back in the early days, there was there was a lot of talk about seeing different things, different lights around the around the capsule, the Gemini capsule, and even when we attempted the first spacewalk outside the Gemini capsule, there was you know observations that were made but were not able to be captured strictly due to the technology we did not have at the time. Isn't that cool? Well, I want to go to commercial break just for a moment. And then I want to come back with uh, Bubba Johnson from NASA Space Center. And let's just focus exclusively on Hurricane Harvey. And as you as the safety officer, talk to me about, you know, your training. And ladies and gentlemen, Bubba's not just the president or the leader, if if you will, of Region 6 of, of VPP. But he's a national treasure as far as procedures and what to do under stress and how to handle this and how to react and respond to that so we're in for a treat we'll come back and really pick the brain of Bubba Johnson about how to handle stress how to deal with these natural disasters and maybe give us a one or two eyewitness accounts of some of the rescue efforts going on down there in Houston this is Dan Clark voiceamerica.com the influencers channel let's go to commercial break and we'll be back in a moment the stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. it's easy and best of all it's free start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top once you've created an account and signed in you can create your own custom library opt into our newsletter search by show host guest or topic of interest or browse millions of hours of content across all of our voice america radio channels membership gets you more visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste Life is complicated and sometimes we all need a little help, but don't have the time for a full hour-long session or don't know who to turn to. That's where BetterHelp comes into play. With BetterHelp, I can get matched with one of over 2,500 licensed and approved counselors and therapists and get help anytime, anywhere, totally private. For a flat weekly fee starting at $35, I can connect with my counselor via text, chat, video conference, or phone, which is great for me because I'm always on the go. And I can go back to previous sessions whenever I want 
want through my secure account from anywhere in the world. It's a great feeling to know that help is there, affordable, private, and convenient to my schedule. We all can use a little help. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash VA health and register for free. You can try it for seven days without being charged on your credit card and get matched with a licensed counselor usually within 24 hours. Get better help today at betterhelp.com forward slash VA health. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. If you're an event meeting planner like me, you have two ongoing challenges. You can't afford to have a speaker who bombs. And when you do have an amazing speaker, who in the world do you bring into next year's meeting that will top them? Well, you never have to worry again. Book Dan Clark. Dan Clark is one of the most incredible human beings on the planet. He's been named one of the top 10 speakers in the world. He's known for customizing his speech around your meeting theme. So your people leave with benefits that last a lifetime. Here's the number, 1-800-676-1121. Or just visit danclark.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You're listening to The Art of Significance, featuring your host, Dan Clark. If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop down a line via email to danclark at xmission.com. Now back to the Art of Significance. Here again is Dan Clark. Welcome back. And my guest is Bubba Johnson, who works at NASA. He's an aerospace engineer by training and a safety officer. And as the occupational and institutional safety officer, Bubba serves as the chairman for the Region 6 VPP Board of Directors, He's a public safety liaison and handles emergency response. Let's just tell the uh, the listeners, Bubba, what is VPP? VPP is, uh, and, and you guys will have to bear with me, I am at NASA and we make acronyms out of acronyms. Uh, but this is the Voluntary Protection Program. It is probably the best safety and health model, program model, that I've seen in my career as a safety person. Uh, it was originally brought up with uh, or, or devised by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, and it's a, it's a partnership between labor and management, obviously, and then government being OSHA. Um, the the overwhelming driving force behind VPP would be that you go over and above the uh, OSHA minimal requirements to keep the employees at your work site safe and healthy. And uh, I'm proud to say that my center is a is a is a VPP star site. Uh, we go out through the uh, Voluntary Protection Program. Participants Association. That's what I'm the chairman of the board of directors for, and that's what Dan got strung out on all the P's a while ago. There are a lot of P's in that acronym. Uh, but we go out and, and mentor other sites to get into the program. Uh, we run a conference once a year, uh, a regional conference. Uh, we do a, a national conference with the national office out of Washington, D.C. It's, uh, it's again, it's, 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 it's the be- the best model that I've ever seen for a safety and health program management uh, that I've that, that, that's out there. It's tried, it's true, it's proven. It saves lives and it keeps people uh, safe and healthy. 
And what better way to increase productivity and the bottom line than to keep people on the job and morale up and, and production going? Uh, it's, it's, it's really a good program, Dan. And I, Dan's been a part of this program for many years, and, and uh, he's familiar with the way it works, and it's, uh, it's an all-around great program. Yes, sir. <clears throat> it's the link. It's the true thread that links ownership, management, leadership, and labor together in the in the same focused cause. And it's just it's so awesome to realize that through VPPA, it's really safety is not really about safety. It's about love. It's about mutual respect and support. It's about concentration. It's about I am my brother's keeper. It's the most amazing organization I've ever participated in. So I was the keynote speaker at their national convention for the sixth time over all these years in New Orleans during Hurricane Harvey. And Bubba was not able to make it. Over 300 people from the Houston area were not able to come to New Orleans because of Harvey. And Bubba was so missed. You were, you're so loved and respected, brother. We missed your leadership, your sense of humor, your amazing speeches. So let's just talk about what was happening in Houston. Talk to us about how you get, how are you notified as a citizen that this hurricane's on its way? And the shock to me was that you didn't suffer so much wind damage, which is usually, from an outsider's perspective, that's the usual consequence of a hurricane. But you had so much rainfall that the flooding and the water damage is what you're dealing with. So as a safety officer and as someone who deals with emergency response, teach us about what was happening. How do you prepare for something like that? And I definitely want to take enough time to have you share one or two rescue stories of how you saw people volunteering their time and their talents and your airboat and your fishing boats and canoes and rafts <laughs> and anything that the good old boys and girls could get together to help one another. You know, you know, there is a, um, you talked earlier, Dan, about 9-11. And, and after 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security came up with a standardized way of communications between first responders, uh, emergency managers, uh, throughout the country, from the local level all the way up to the federal level. And that particular system is called the uh, the National Incident Management System, or, or NIMS, another acronym. So all of my emergency response personnel here at the Johnson Space Center are trained in uh, the National Incident Management System. And we immediately set up the incident command um, when we first got wind that um, that Harvey was maybe maybe coming to visit us. Harvey, uh, you, you may mention, Dan, that, that it was more of a rain event. In the Houston area, you are exactly correct. It was rain. It wasn't as much wind. But our friends down near Corpus Christi, south of here, were hit with, you know, 120, 130-mile-an-hour winds. And they were devastated. They did take a large hit in infrastructure, um, but it was a different sort of impact than what we felt here in Houston. In Houston, uh, it was a rain event. Um, back in 1979, uh, Tropical Storm Claudette came through, and we set the one-day national record for rainfall just about 20 miles southeast of here uh, in a little town named Alvin, Texas, where we had 42 inches of rain in 24 hours, and the I'm whole area—kidding me! 
42, that's almost four feet, you know, three and a half feet of rain in, in 24 hours. It decimated the Houston area, and it was just a tropical storm. But it did similar to what Harvey did. It just parked on top of us and continued to dump rain. Now, Harvey came in, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and uh, we actually have a new world record now, or a new national record. Um, in, in Baytown, Texas, just about 20 miles the opposite direction of Alvin, we had 51.8 inches of rain in 24 hours. Oh, my let gosh. That, let that soak in, Dan. 50, almost 52 inches of rain in 24 hours. So Whoa. it's more of a rising water event, a rain event here uh, in, in the Houston area. But from, from Corpus Christi all the way to the Louisiana border where you guys were down in New Orleans, um, you know, that's about a 400-mile stretch of, of Texas Gulf Coast and Louisiana Gulf Coast that were affected in different ways but were affected by this, by this Hurricane Harvey. Um, through the National Incident Management System, or NIMS, I was tied in as an emergency responder with the National Weather Service, and we had... Uh, teleconferences every six hours with the emergency managers physically located between Corpus Christi and all the way out to Orange, Texas, which is almost at the border with Louisiana. And we had the, the some of the best minds out there trying to predict what was going to happen with Harvey. And for the most part, they were very successful in their predictions. And then at NASA, we would turn around and broadcast these uh, these predictions out to the NASA employees, both contractor and civil servant, so they could do their best to prepare, uh, be that uh, hunker down, so to speak, or to leave town or evacuate. Um, but we were relaying information through every way we can, and we used a lot of social media. We used uh, email. We used telephones, cell phones, whatever way we knew to relay this message, which was a vast difference uh, when we set the record back in 1979 when you didn't have any of that. So, um, <clears throat> go ahead, Dan. No, I was just going to say, did you, was there enough warning for you to, you know, fill your homes with water and fill your vehicles with gas and get some supplies on the shelves in your own home? Or was it, how does the emergency preparedness system work in our country, especially down in the Houston area? Well, in, in the Houston area, especially, is uh, we, are, we are used to, I hate to say used to, but we are familiar with uh, the, the ravages of the weather. And when it became apparent that we were going to be affected, uh, there was enough time for folks to get out, uh, fill up their cars with fuel, uh, go to the grocery store, load up on batteries, on water, on... Uh, you know what funny thing about the one of the first things to go and one of the... Pal I saw pallets come into the grocery stores was Pop-Tarts. Do you believe that, Dan? Pop-Tarts was, was one of the... <laughs> You know, that's the next closest thing to MREs that a civilian can get. So they, everybody was loading up on Pop-Tarts. Um, but that's funny. Yeah, there was enough time. Yeah. My shelves are full of Hershey, Hershey chocolate balls, bars, and Diet Coke. Those are two of my four food groups. So bring on the hurricane. I don't care. I can hunker down for four months and survive. 
Heck yeah, I am ready. Um, so, so as far as this, the center, as far as NASA getting ready, uh, we we have a hurricane rideout team. Uh, it's made up of a hurricane rideout team captain. He's the he's actually in charge of the center when the center is shut down for a hurricane. Um, but we did not stand up this hurricane rideout team. Uh, we had enough time to prepare the center. Uh, we shut down the center when we knew Harvey was coming on the Saturday before it got here. Uh, the center was prepared, and we really did not sustain any wind damage. Uh, we had a couple of trees blow over, but that was about it. We did not sustain a lot of uh, rising water damage, except for one facility. And uh, Dan, you may be familiar with it. It's the Sunny yeah. Carter Training Facility. Yeah, the swimming pool where the astronauts uh, learn how to do their magic. That's right. And we got about, we got not quite a foot of water in there. So, you know, it was the typical go in, rip out all of the carpets. Anything on the floor had to be thrown away because, as you know, rising water is not clean water. Yes, sir. Rising water is full of all sorts of, uh, of, of bad stuff that you really don't want um, in, in your living space or your workspace. So... so- so let's shift gears then. So, so were you evacuated or were you were you uh, counseled to just hunker down? And if you hunker down, what are you supposed to do to prepare for a hurricane? Do you board up your windows? Do you go to low ground? Well, that would seem kind of odd because that's where the floodwaters come. So t- teach us who teach us those of us who are not in a a hurricane area how do you prepare what do you what do you tell the people how do you how do you make sure that they're they're prepared mentally and physically and and spiritually and 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 you know teach us good that that's that's a good question the so in the in the houston galveston area uh, there are different flood zones uh, ranging from one to five and it's divided up uh, to where it's easier for for us to understand by zip codes so your zip code may may fall into a flood zone that's really uh susceptible to flooding and we learned when uh when rita and katrina came that you don't just say okay we're going to evacuate everyone between houston and galveston it has to be a staged evacuation and most of the people here are aware every hurricane season Hurricane maps come out, and it's in the social media and and television and everything else goes over all of these zones, and you need to know where your zip code is and what zone is, because the the emergency managers, uh, the the uh, the people in charge of emergency management come in and say, if you're in zone two, you need to evacuate now. And um, some people will and some people won't. It's not mandatory, uh, but they need to understand, and they do understand that if their area is told to evacuate and they choose not to, there's a real good chance that they call 911, nobody's going to be able to come out because they can't get to you. So the, the people in the Gulf Coast area are really used to these zones and they're used to bad weather coming in. And especially after Rita and Katrina they uh, they understand the fact that if if I am elderly or if I have some sort of disability or 
for some reason I'm not able to uh, physically stand up to the demands of, of severe weather, I need to get out of town and they will leave. Yes, sir. Let's shift. You're one of my favorite people on the planet. I don't just say that to try and suck up to you so you hire me again, but that would be nice. I need to, you know, put the pressure on you on the air. But I, I know you've seen some volunteer efforts in, in the rescue going on in, 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 in the Houston area. Do you have one or two eyewitness accounts or one or two that you've heard that perhaps weren't on national TV that you can share with my listeners? I, I can. In fact, and, and I have a couple I want to share with you. One, the first one I want to share with you is uh, our our relationship with the with the state of Louisiana, where you were during during Harvey. They have what what we have called we have uh, named them the Cajun Navy. There was a long line of pickup jacked up pickup trucks with boats trailers behind them all headed towards Houston and down in the Corpus area, and uh, the majority of them had Louisiana plates on them. And these guys were not getting paid to come in. Nobody asked them to come in. They were doing what they thought they needed to do. How can I help? I've got a boat. I've got a big truck. I can go down there and help those people. They came down here not having a place to stay, not maybe not even knowing anyone here, but they knew they could help out. So... We are in great debt to the, quote, Cajun Navy that we love with all of our heart. Um, another story I want to tell you a little bit closer to home is that the, the small town that I live in, just about 10 miles from NASA, a little town of Friendswood, um, the, one of the local high school football coaches sent out a text to his football players on uh, Tuesday, I believe it was, Tuesday around noon, said, hey, we're, instead of having football practice tomorrow morning, if you want to volunteer, you don't have to do it, but if you want to volunteer and come in, we will branch out around the community and just go through the neighborhoods and volunteer our services, pulling out carpet, moving furniture out to the street, cutting sheetrock, drywall, whatever people need. And he got a lot of response from the football players. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. And this particular football coach is not really that into social media. So he got a call later on that night from one of the other coaches, and he goes, Coach, you're not going to believe this. this your, your text has gone viral. Uh, we have every member of the football team, both varsity, junior varsity, and freshman. We have um, the basketball team, the golf team, the swim team, cheerleaders, the band, they're all going to be there tomorrow morning. And that next morning, Dan, there were over a 200 students there ready to volunteer. And they just fanned out in small groups and spent the next two, some of them three days, working all day long, just going door to door, knocking on door, can we help you do anything? And they, wow. uh, they, they, that, that is the true spirit right there of what, you know, Dan, you mentioned earlier 9-11. And, and I'm not getting off the track, but 9-11, what happened to the country? They all came together. They were Americans. They were all one. We are here. We are Americans. That what, that's what I saw happen here in my little town of Friendswood. We are all Texans. We are all part of this community. And we will help each other any way we possibly can. That's so, uh, you know me, I'm emotional. Yeah. But that's, 
you know, as I travel the country, I still see how much discord and and little hate we have for family members or friends based on who we decided to vote for for the president of the United States. And it's about time we started to heal as a country and not put so much emphasis on who's right, but come together on what's right and service before self always heals. Volunteer Protection Program Participants Association obviously epitomizes what you're about and what this interview is about and what you Texans teach the world. I just, uh, I honor you, brother. And maybe I can impose on you to just give one final universal message about the significance of volunteerism that both the giver and the receiver of service benefit. We're both transformed, as we know. But what would you say as a safety officer to the world right now? What would you say to every industry and anyone who's listening in on this show about the significance of service before self? Service before self, you are your brother's keeper. Uh, you, you're, you're here. You need to take care of your neighbor, your family. Uh, we are all part of an infrastructure that makes this country the greatest country on the earth. And we cannot lose track of that based on exactly what you said on who you voted for or the color of your skin. We are Americans. We, part, we are part of the greatest country in the world. And we need to start taking care of each other and making other countries realize that that is the best way to conduct business. And isn't it interesting how adversity introduces us to ourselves that no one really knows how strong we are until being strong is our only choice. Would you agree, Bubba? I would agree to that. And and you were talking earlier about uh, PTS. I look at these emergency responders out there and and see what they've been through over the last week. And I can't help but think, what can I do in the following weeks and months even when these guys come back down to earth, when they stop living on adrenaline and caffeine and realize what they've been through? How can I help? Absolutely. Is there some way, I know you're not really a social media guy, is there some way that people can join your tribe or is there some way that we could support some cause or something that's going on in Houston right now or get involved with VPP? What what, what would be your final challenge or your call to action if you had one? If, if people would like to get involved with VPP, it's very simple. The website is VPPPA, that's three P's, vppa.org and we have a fantastic staff uh, located in Washington, D.C. that would do anything in the world to get you into the program. Um, as far as the city of Houston goes, if you just, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the website here, but if you Google city of Houston, the, one of the first things that will come up there is our Houston website and there are multiple ways if you'd like to help financially or even volunteer, there are ways to do it. Thanks, Bubba. God bless you, and I can't wait to see you. And I'll call you maybe in the next couple of days offline, and we'll we'll start talking about the future. I, we need to get together. We need to do it, Dan. I love you, brother. Okay, thanks so much. This is Dan Clark, VoiceAmerica.com. It's the Influencers Channel. Let's go to commercial break, and we're back with Major General Don Alston, graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, MBA, and recently retired two-star general, And he's now the president of Alston Strategic Consulting. And we're going to talk about 
what led up to September 11th, the attack on our country, not on our country, but on our belief system and what we did about it as we focus in on the day after the 16th anniversary of that horrific day when 19 terrorists attacked our, 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 our love, our life, our core values. We'll be back in a moment. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. I just got out of a meeting where the unbelievable Dan Clark was the keynote speaker. He is clearly the most interesting man in the world. He's been into space. He reminded us to think bigger. He's a primary contributor to those chicken soup books. And he inspired all of us to make our lives matter. He taught us how to deal with change like he had to when he had to recover from a paralyzing football injury. Everybody needs to hear his message on leadership and safety and how he turns last place NFL teams into Super Bowl champions. Call this number, 1-800-676-1121 and visit danclark.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. I'm busy and so is my family. Leftover pizza and unhealthy takeout isn't really doing it for us anymore. Just ask my bathroom scale. That all changed when I found Freshly. For less than $10 a meal, Freshly delivers six meals a week, always fresh, never frozen, prepared by top chefs and nutritionists using the best, freshest, gluten-free ingredients. The best part is the menu is always new and fresh, just like the food, and it only takes three minutes for me to prepare breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and there's no messy cleanup and no dishes. My family loves the choices and the taste and freshly delivers to my home and my office so I eat healthy all day, every day. If you're tired of the same old cardboard delivery and takeout, try out Freshly.com today and save $20 on your first order using coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Your taste buds and your scale will thank you. So save 20 bucks today with coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Influence is often inherited, but more often created from our actions. The Voice America Influencers Channel brings together those who are creating and leading the way and those who will create the road from nowhere in the future. Being an influencer isn't always about being the most important person in the world. It's about being the most influential person in the world around you. A better manager, a better friend, a better marketer or strategic planner. The Voice America Influencers Channel is about becoming better and earning influence. Be an influencer. Join us today. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You're listening to The Art of Significance featuring your host, Dan Clark. 
If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop Dan a line via email to Clark at xmission.com. Now back to the Art of Significance. Here again is Dan Clark. Welcome back. Hopefully you've been on, on the show here. You've been tuned in for the last hour. I talked a little bit about the negative stress in our lives and how we can turn it into positive stress. And that positive stress actually contributes to our productivity and our performance. Obviously, the law of diminishing return that we talked about, the classic example of when you water a tomato plant, you water it and fertilize it and water it and nourish it and water and it grows. But if you overwater it, you literally drown the plant and it dies. So too much stress obviously is harmful enough and not enough stress doesn't get us to peak performance. There's no reason to dig deep and and get that set and, and trigger that second wind, as we call it, that hustle that applies to every body type. So stress is okay because it defines who we are, not because of the stress, but because of our reaction or response to the stress. So the cliche is obviously, it's not what happens to us that defines us, it's what we do with what happens to us that makes us who we are. And because we've been talking about natural disasters with Bubba, uh, Elmer Bubba Johnson from NASA and Hurricane Harvey, let's shift gears and talks exclusively about we as Americans, as brothers and sisters who wave the red, white, and blue, acknowledging that when we were attacked on September 11, 2001, they did not attack buildings. They did not attack a landmass. They were not trying to conquer and take over our country. They attacked what we believe in. And that is so significant to what is happening in the world at the, at the current moment with ISIS and North Korea and Russia and China and Iran and every other rogue nation who has a beef with America. They don't care about me in Salt Lake City, Utah. They don't care about General Don Alston in Wyoming or Washington, D.C. They don't care about Bubba Johnson down in Houston, Texas. They are offended by our core values of goodness, of integrity first, of service before self and volunteerism and a a commitment to excellence in all we do. And because of that, we have a a multi-decade riff going on with people who disagree with our beliefs and they call us infidels and they call us this and they call us that. But the expert in everything that's happened to America since I was born, and I don't say that facetiously, Major General Don Alston is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, MBA, and a recently retired two-star general, now president of Alston Strategic Consulting. And General Alston, my friend Don, he specializes in high-consequence strategic planning and safety-intensive operations for nuclear weapons operations. I had to say that in one breath, General. I can barely (laughs) spell three out of the five words. I specialize in maintenance of nuclear weapons and the security from 2005 to 2006. General Alston served in Baghdad as the deputy chief for multinational force 
engaging international media with the Iraqi government. So he was an eyewitness, ladies and gentlemen. He was in the closed door sessions. He was behind the scenes. But more importantly, when a crisis occurred, the man or woman in charge would say, Don, you go talk to him. Don, you go handle it. Don, you go tell him to go away. Don, you go answer. And so Don was actually the spokesperson that glued together the coalition back in the early days of the Iraqi war, obviously spilling over into Afghanistan, which is where it really all began as our response to 7-11. To, to Listen to that. You can tell I'm hungry and thirsty. Our response to 9-11. And what I want everybody to know as I bring you on in the air here, sir, Don's final assignment was commander of the 20th Air Force responsible for 9,600 personnel, three operational bases, and 450 deployed intercontinental ballistic missiles responsible for providing the ICBM alert force to U.S. Strategic Command. Whoa. Don directed the nuclear task force that executed the most extensive reorganization of the Air Force in 15 years. And General Alston understands deterrence and assurance in, re- in, in relation to the, uh, the volatility of North Korea, China, Russian, and Iran. And because this is a radio show, I'm 6'5", I still weigh about 235, I've lost 41 pounds since I got through playing American football. General Alston is about 6'2", 6'3", much better looking than me. That just ticks me off right out of the chutes. But both of us are big men, and he's stronger than myself, but both of us can hold our own, and therefore we've avoided so many fights growing up. We've avoided so many conflicts growing up just because we could deter someone from punching us in the face because they knew we were stronger than them. They knew we were faster than them. They knew we were smarter than them. And that if they dared get into a battle, especially when it had something to do with our family and friends, they better get out of the way or I'm going to rip their freaking lips off. Those are my words, not General Alston's words, ladies and gentlemen. But to put it into perspective, deterrence are what is really, really significant in our arsenal of the nuclear enterprise. And yet, because we still had deterrence and we still were prepared for a battle, something happened and we were still attacked on September 11, 2001, 16 years ago yesterday. General Alston, welcome back to my show, brother. Dan, thanks. So good to be with you. So let's go right back to the back. For those of us listening who weren't even aware of September 11th, maybe not even alive when September 11th, 2001 changed our country, changed our way of life and thinking forever, could you kind of give us the historical backdrop? Why in the world would, what was going on in the world? Why would someone want to attack what we believe in as Americans? Well, I, uh, I I think there is a chronology that would probably be helpful uh, to share, and so I'll work through that. But I think I'd say first off, uh, right out of the chute, that there is evil on Earth, and uh, and we have seen that evil, and um, brave men and women need to confront that evil and to uh, challenge it, or you know, left to their own devices and given enough time and space. Uh, they they propagate uh, more of that evil into their 
to their warped end. So, uh, so what I'm going to lay out here is going to be a, just a real brief chronology to think about. Um, but one thing that we shouldn't take away from this is, um, you know, there's nothing the United States did that would, um, that would in any way uh, put us in a position where, um, you know, where civilized nations would challenge us in the way um, that these evildoers did. But I think I'd take us all the way back to the 70s. You could probably go farther than that. But our close relationship with Israel certainly has kept us engaged in that region. And I think over time, over the last few decades, we've been even more and more engaged in the region. And so in 1973, there was this Yom Kippur War, and Israel was kind of back on its heels. But because the United States reacted quickly and because of our airlift, they regained momentum and prevailed. And then, of course, the ensuing thing, and Dan, uh, you and I were, you know, you know all, uh, similar ages, but, I mean, I had just uh, gotten my license. And when Mom sent me out to get in line to get gas, that was new. Uh, but in the 73, 74 oil embargo was one of the reactions to our intervention in that region. And that was really painful, and that put a lot of things in motion for our country to think about energy independence and, and these kinds of things. But, okay, so let but me interrupt you. So, so the yeah, oil embargo, it was imposed by whom, and, and get a little bit more detailed on that exact experience. Sure, um, a- absolutely. Well, um, you know, the, the fundamental confrontation in the region is uh, Arab versus Israeli. And so a coalition of the Egyptians and the Saudi Arabians um, and others, um, you know, formulated a, um, an aggressive coalition that wanted to uh, take back territory that Israel had gained during the 1967 war. And so, so the oil-producing uh, exporting countries, or OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they, um, they, they held all the cards when it came to the flow of oil and uh, pricing, and so when they were of because a voice because of and they, because of a because of America's dependence on Middle Eastern oil, correct? Right. I'm sorry. Absolutely, because of the world's dependence there, and so not only do we have great national security equities in the region because of our dependence, particularly at that time. Um, but you know the Chinese have growing uh, uh, dependence on that. I mean the world um, does revolve around. Uh, petroleum still, and uh, but when that that uh, cartel used to be um, monopoly, that used to be very powerful, and frankly unbreakable. And so when they decided to take an action, they they took that action and fixed the prices and fixed supply, and um, and that was directed at um, punishing us. And so so they did that, and we reacted as Americans. I mean, we we got in line and. And we marshaled on, but it was a very difficult uh, period of time over the course of parts of 1973 and 1974. And then we came out of that, and frankly, it also spurred us to, um, you know, to do a little bit more in our own, our domestic capacity. And, and right now, we're we're pretty darn, we're very strong and much less dependent on uh, foreign oil for our for our daily needs. But nonetheless, still a vital region of the, of the world and stability on many different levels across many different countries and regions depend on the stable flow of petroleum. But anyway, so that was another event in the 70s we were involved in. And then we 
Many of us remember the hostages taken at the American Embassy in Tehran, Iran, for like 444 days until, you know, the plane didn't leave the airfield in Tehran until uh, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president as an affront to the outgoing president, Jimmy Carter. But nonetheless, that was another, um, you know, tension, another uh, American involvement and, and uh, uh, another challenge to our sovereignty as they raided our, our embassy, which is sovereign territory in any particular country. Um, in the mid-80s, there was the Iran-Iraq war. To, we shot down an Iranian let, jet. Let me interrupt before you get into that because I just want to shift gears for a second. Isn't that when we boycotted the Olympics as well? It it was in 1980. So we the the Russians invaded Afghanistan, and and they began a long slog in Afghanistan. I mean, we've exceeded it in terms of the amount of number of years we've been there um, currently. But but nonetheless, because the Russians invaded Afghanistan, um, certainly we had concerns about what their desires were. In the end, was it to fortify their access to Persian Gulf oil, although they have a lot of capacity to domestically produce uh, energy, but they could certainly put pressure and deny or otherwise help influence or control oil flow around the world if they were to have uh, Afghanistan in their pocket. But they found a lot of resistance, and because they invaded Afghanistan, um, President Carter um, you know, said we weren't going to participate in the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. And so, right, so there's another world event that connects us to the region, and, uh, and so our profile continued to grow in the region. And then um, in the mid-'80s, there's Iran-Iraq war. Um, we shoot down an Iranian airliner. Um, then we get to Desert, Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when Iraq invades uh, Kuwait. And this becomes, I think, one of the pivotal points in the uh, mind of a, of a bin Laden. Because in order to prosecute that fight, the president, H.W. Uh, Bush, um, uh, you know, uh, committed us to we required a lot of support, and, and uh, that President Bush was a master coalition builder. And so we had dozens of Arab nations as a part of our coalition. Um, but it required us to create a footprint of American presence in the region, and specifically in Saudi Arabia, but also in Qatar, where we continue to have a, a significant presence. And so now the United States is actually, we're conducting combat missions out of the region, we, uh, instead of, you know, flying halfway around the world to conduct these missions. And, and our presence is not looking as temporary to those who, in bin Laden, so I, well, I can't quote a bin Laden, but, but he didn't like the United States in the kingdom. And he was a very wealthy guy, and he could start to uh, build Al-Qaeda. And so he manifests his reach um, in 1998, when on the same day, he has two coordinated attacks, one in Tanzania and one in Nairobi, Kenya, where bombers hit our embassies. And we knew, you know, pretty quickly because of people that, you know, our intel experts following this, that Bin Laden's fingerprints were all over this. And I jumped over one really important event because in 1993, after Desert Shield and Desert Storm, where, by the way, your United States Air Force began flying combat missions in the, you know, the winter of 1989 and early, I'm sorry, 1990 and early 91. And yes, we've sir. been flying those missions now for 27 years. Aye, aye, aye. So uh, it's, uh, why we, it's amazing. Why we, why, we, why we regress to that magnificent uh, fact. 
for those of you who don't truly understand, bin Laden is a Sunni, very wealthy Sunni, and the two most sacred places, part of the five pillars of Islam, is that you must make a pilgrimage to Mecca um, before you pass away. That's one of the goals of, 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 of Muslims. And Medina and Mecca, the two most holy cities in all of Islam, are both located in Saudi Arabia. And therefore, as you were saying, when we became, when we established our airfields there outside of Riyadh and other places to execute the, the Iraqi war, um, bin Laden took that personally, especially when we, we seemed to indicate that we weren't just coming in in a trailer park, but we were actually putting in some foundations and planning to stay there for a while. And that's what really got his got under his skin is that not correct that's kind of the detail of why he was why he took it so personally and was so offended and then used his wealth and influence to kind of figure out a way to counter that is that correct and that's that's the essential point absolutely that's the essential point and of course uh another event that occurred uh was the bombing of uh kobar towers uh Uh, oh my gosh and How many so, did we lose that day? Uh, yeah. Two were two hundred and fifty killed that day. Um, I don't think the numbers were that big, but they were that big in the Beirut bombing back in like nineteen eighty one, two, or three at the Marine Barracks in Beirut. Another yeah. important event in this chronology of U.S. presence, growing U.S. presence in the region. You may be right on those numbers, Dan. I I don't know. And in that Kobar Towers, there were a lot of airmen. And, uh, and, and those airmen had come from bases all over the country. So a lot of bases and missions were affected by the loss of, uh, of, these, uh, uh, of these folks over there. But it was another manifestation of, you know, evil uh, challenging our presence uh, in the region. And were these the splinter groups or were, was, they, were they splinter groups or do you think bin Laden as a wealthy young man was already starting to formulate al-Qaeda? Well, um, I can't remember who we may have attributed that to, but you know the 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 strength of Al Qaeda at the time and and when it was at its height is that it was a very loose network. So if you could inspire people uh, to uh, sign up to your vision, how they actually tried to achieve your vision, they had some leeway, and and if you could float them some cash, they'd be more effective. So. Bin Laden was looking to organize different cells to, uh, to you know, achieve his vision. And is it true that Bin Laden studied in the states, or his 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 brother or his children have studied here? I what think is there that was a family up? connection, but I don't think he personally. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if he ever came over to the United States. I'm I'm just not sure. Um, but the important event that I, I want to also mention is in 1993, the World Trade Center was bombed. And the intent of that attack was with a van loaded with extraordinarily high explosives was to blow up the North Tower and have it careen over into the South Tower to take down the World Trade Center. And uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed bankrolled this, and of course, this guy's in Guantanamo now, because he also bankrolled and played a very significant role in 9-11. And so, uh, but the first attack on the World Trade Center was in 1993. So that has been an important target for 
you know, for this movement. And, uh, and so, again, our presence is, uh, you know, grows in the region, um, is significant in the region. It continues to be very uh, supportive of Israel, as has been our, our legacy since the birth of, uh, of the nation. And, uh, and then, of course, um, the 9-11 occurs. So I, I think that those events contribute to the psyche of this guy who um, really felt that, uh, you know, that, that uh, the United States was, uh, you know, that the United States had, had values that were counter to um, the ideals that he had for jihad and for uh, Sunni uh, Islam. And, uh, and so I think, I think some of those things absolutely set the stage for him to be inspired to, uh, to do what he did. All right. And, because uh, and you're then, a genius, let me occurs. let me put you on the spot then, General. What do you know about the organization of the 19 attackers on that Tuesday morning, September 11th? Talk, talk to us about what you know about the planning and the execution of that terror attack on our country. Well, uh, the dominant number across those 19 attackers was uh, they they were. Um, Saudi Arabian, and uh, there's also one of the uh, one of the folks, that, one of the uh, terrorists that flew into one of the World Trade Centers, uh, Mohammed Atta. He was an Egyptian, so um, you know certainly it wasn't exclusively um, Saudis, but it was dominated by uh, Saudis, and and some folks have tried to draw, draw linkage to uh, the uh, the Saudi government. I don't know that anybody has. Uh, you know, successfully done that, but but they uh, they trained, um, they came over, they they learned, and, and sadly, there were multiple stories of them uh, worried about just how to take off an airliner and fly an airliner, but they, um, in some cases, didn't show an interest in landing the airliner. And you know, the schools that were teaching them found that odd, but you know, we weren't connecting the dots on on just what risks or vulnerabilities that that was exposing. But uh, these guys were, were uh, built in their own cells, so the teams that went on the plane were their own cells, um, had to inspire each other to do each one of those, to get in each one of those four planes and uh, go two to the World Trade Center, uh, one that was taken down because of uh, the intervention of passengers in western Pennsylvania, and then the one that went into the Pentagon. But some of them also trained in Europe, so there were uh, cells in Germany, and then eventually, you know, they, uh, through, you know, very, um, you know, effective coordination, uh, were able to mount their attack um, at the same time um, and uh, on the same day and uh, achieve pretty devastating results. I mean, you know, 3,000 people were killed. Um, you know, uh, the folks in the Pentagon, the, the two World Trade Centers, and then the plane load of people that went down in western Pennsylvania, and even the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, which was targeted by the uh, Japan government against U.S. Uh, naval capabilities. Uh, in this particular case, um, these are non-combatants. Uh, I mean, you can, you can argue that uh, people wearing uniforms in the Pentagon, um, you know, are, are willing to die for their country, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, they swore an oath to defend the country, but I really don't buy into uh, the re- uh, any position that these weren't, inter- you know, that all these folks weren't innocents. Uh, with regard to this and, and certainly weren't combatants. And yeah, then totally all the nations agree. that were in the World Trade Center that also perished with uh, the Americans. 
Yeah, I, I know that there were over, uh, well over 93 nations, citizens from 93 nations who perished at the World Trade Center that day on Tuesday. Right. You know, this brings up this brings up something, sir, that it's 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 so critically important that we understand again that the the, the the mindset of these individuals. They did not attack our country. They weren't trying to conquer any landmass. They attacked what we believe in. So do you believe that this evil will ever go away? Do you believe that that there will always be that faction of bad guys in the world who say we can't stand America the beautiful, the land of, of the free because of the brave? So it's just an ongoing battle. In other words, we finish one fight and here comes another one. Is that what we basically need to understand as citizens, as taxpayers, so we can fully fund the military and start and, and keep ba- and, and stop backing off, thinking that the world is going to just be, you know, hunky dory, and one day we're going to sit around on towels and sing kumbaya. I, I absolutely believe that that for the for the foreseeable future, this is a threat and there is a risk to. Uh, to our nation, that uh, that this this brand of terrorism uh, can bring and visit upon us again. Uh, there are success stories over time, though. Where I mean, there was a, there was a, Italy had a bad uh, terrorist cell uh, in the '80s that ultimately got eliminated. Germany had uh, a pervasive terrorism problem in the '70s and '80s, and that was ultimately eliminated as well. This, um, you know, you can't paint all these terrorists with the same brush. But this, I think, is uh, is more extensive and more pervasive. Um, and yet, and yet, you know, um, Al Qaeda uh, has been uh, reduced. Um, you know, they're not who they used to be. ISIS, which was a territory conquering enterprise, still holds some territory, but they're back on their heels, and um, and they are being uh, defeated as they get eliminated from another city in Iraq, most recently Talafar, uh, mm-hmm. outside of Mosul, and just before that, Mosul itself. So um, those entities um, are not what they used to be, and so, um, you know, the progress is being made. But at the same time, the Taliban is, uh, is still very much a force to be reckoned with in Afghanistan. And the Pakistanis, um, you know, they, our nation has challenged them to uh, get on board with us or, um, or else, you know, we're, we're going to have to pursue, um, you know, across the border to, uh, to get the bad guys who are, you know, trying to uh, evade and find safe haven in Pakistan. So you gotta, you got to pick a side. But I think the fight needs to continue to be pressed. And, um, you know, we've got one of the things that you uh, hinted at in 9-11 on who was around and who wasn't around at that time, with a lot of your audience uh, probably uh, young enough to not personally witness that, but I'll tell you, you and I have both heard an awful lot of stories of young men and women who, um, who were so affected by seeing that, that that was their call to serve. And Absolutely. That, uh, because of that attack against us, uh, if the effect was to have us uh, quake in our boots, uh, obviously we're Americans and nobody says it better probably than Toby Keith in terms of you put a boot in our butt, it's the, uh, we'll put a boot in your butt, it's the American way. Um, that's, that's, you know, uh, that's not who we are. Who we are is you challenge us like that. You, 
you come to us under these circumstances and uh, and we will whether we're wearing a uniform or not we will all rush you we'll rush you like the like you the guy, like uh, Todd Beamer on the, on the flight in western Pennsylvania and so an awful lot of Americans were inspired to raise their hand and take an oath and defend Let's our roll. country and they serve today yeah, and like the Emperor of Japan said after they attacked Pearl Harbor, I'm afraid we've awakened a giant, and that's what the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS have done. You know, I, I think it's worth pointing out, sir, uh, to the listeners, that when you said that these non-combatants were attacked and killed on September 11th on that beautiful Tuesday morning, indiscriminately killed as civilians, one of the things that our listeners need need to understand, and I just want you to validate it, sir, is that the reason why it's taking us so long to execute the war against ISIS and against the Taliban is because we don't just put bumper-to-bumper B-52s and carpet bombs some city. We strategically right. and surgically use very, very expensive rockets and weaponry to take out specific sites, specific enemy combatants to avoid the casualties and the collateral damage in the civilian world. And we're Americans. We believe that. We're not just going to kill a whole entire village to, to take out five bad guys that are creating the, the, the concern. I just want you to validate that as a general officer, sir. I'm a civilian who's never been in a uniform, but I've been around at the high-level meetings, as you know. And I, I just know our integrity as an Air Force our integrity as a military and our concern for collateral damage, and we, we almost we go so far out of our way because we don't want to take out a, a non-combatant. Could you just address that for a couple of minutes before we go on? Well, uh, you get to see um, how um, how we approach uh, uh, threats uh, today um, across the, the full spectrum of all of our national capabilities. In the, in the case of chasing uh, an ISIS, an al-Qaeda, uh, a Taliban, these are non-government entities. So you can't just, uh, you know, turn to uh, uh, an Afghan government that right now is not sufficiently effective and say, uh, well, as we did the Taliban, you're running Afghanistan. Uh, these are our demands right now. Uh, you know, we want bin Laden, we want every training site, we want all this stuff. And when the Taliban, which was the government in Afghanistan, they held power, said no, we took them out. It took us about a month and a half, but they were gone. So on one hand, uh, when you don't have a nation state to engage, um, it is uh, it presents a different challenge. And so hunting these people and killing them um, is painstaking, but we have robusted up our special operations forces. It takes a long time uh, to do all the full training to make these guys the, uh, you know, more than million-dollar man and woman they are to be our special operators, but we've expanded that because that's the kind of capability we need to go after this. And then at the same time, you're watching us at the highest levels engage in North Korea where we have to, you know, there is a government, there is someone in power, the, the accountable guys are right there uh, front and center, and they have to be engaged uh, in a particular way. We haven't solved the riddle of how to get the behaviors we want out of Kim Jong-un, but nonetheless, in that particular case, it is a nation state, and we engage a nation state uh, with different levers of power than when you have to, uh, hunt, uh, you know, hunt, hunt evil 
cell by cell and man by man, um, you know, across desert regions and wide wide expanses as well. So it's not a target-rich environment when it comes to that. So absolutely, the American way of war is not one to be indiscriminate with our lethal capabilities. It's to be very discriminate with our lethal capabilities as much as uh, the opportunity pr- presents itself to us. So, All right, but that um, still brings up that still brings up his some historical facts, sir. Because Japan was a, a nation state that declared war, we we had to consider every one of them combatants, and we took out the country. The same thing held true with Afghanistan, obviously, and obviously the same thing holds true with Iran and especially North Korea. So, I mean, we have the guts and the intestinal fortitude and obviously the weaponry to turn North Korea into a parking lot if this uh, whistle-deck leader they have continually threatens not just America, but the Western world. So, I mean, is that going to be, that obviously will be a different kind of warfare where Germany allowed Hitler to bamboozle them to the point where he converted the entire country to fight for the Nazis. And therefore, we had to take out cities, we had to take out air bases, we had to take out facilities. And is that the case with North Korea, where it seems to me that the entire country is behind their leader, and everyone seems to be a combatant anyway, they're all part of the military. Uh, When it comes down to it, uh, rumor has it from my circle of influence that North Korea will last about 45 minutes if they keep messing with America. Talk to us about that, General. Well, you know, I, I think that when you when you bring your World War II examples, we've reached a point uh, over the course of that conflict, and it you know it happened early, but then it, it continued to be prosecuted for years. But that was the last time we were involved in total war, and and uh, you know the brutality, uh, you know the 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 fact that when you do the straight line math, thirty thousand human beings were killed every day for five years, um, you know, do the math on that, you know, I mean, I cannot minimize the near 60,000 American servicemen and women that were killed in Vietnam, um, but if you just compare and contrast numbers, uh, that's two days of World War II, and so that was, uh, you know, uh, God forbid that kind of level of conflict happens again, and I happen to be right reading the rise and fall of the third right then, and, uh, I smile because you always give me more credit than I deserve. I'm more lucky than good sometimes. But, you know, that circumstance at the, at the turn of the century and the early decade and a half, um, uh, just prior to World War I and then in the 20s, um, uh, Germany was, was longing for a strong leader. They tried democracy with the Weimar Republic, and it was a failure. And so the, uh, you know, the worldwide uh, depression and uh, the lack of effective government to nurture democracy in Germany after, um, you know, after the, the Prussian generals had uh, run the country. Um, they, they were longing for somebody, and it turned out to be, uh, to the detriment of the world, um, a guy like uh, Adolf Hitler. Um, so, and then he did effectively, um, you know, seize power in such a way that he could, uh, he could uh, you know, distribute his brutality as he saw fit. So in this case with uh, North Korea, I think that the, the risks in, uh, associated with the, with the escalation that is underway 
um, escalation latest uh, move was by uh, the good guys through the UN to ratchet up sanctions. Um, the bad guy is now going to respond to that. The bad guy ratcheted up escalation with his six uh, nuclear uh, bomb test, which apparently was very substantial. Um, the bad guy, uh, you know, launches his rockets perhaps as another escalation move. So, so the risk is is that um, neither side, uh, you know, controls the universe here, and escalation increases risk. And and then as you know, uh, will you be able to control the uh, the outcomes uh, depending on the level of escalation? But I still think. The key player is China, because what China is, is getting out of this right now is the South Koreans talk about bringing nuclear weapons back to the peninsula. China wouldn't like that. Japan um, talks about changing its constitution so they're not called the Japan Defense Forces anymore. And maybe they go with an organic nuclear uh, program, and China would not want that. If the United States has 29,000, almost 30,000 troops in South Korea, under these circumstances, you know, would we consider sending more troops? China does not want more U.S. in the region. So for all and, China and has Guam. done to dominate the region, there are things happening that they do not like the potential outcomes. Now, certainly they are afraid of a massive refugee influx of North Koreans depending on what happens. But, you know, maybe an influx of refugees, uh, all things being equal, would be preferable to them if they were to be able to change the calculus and bring stability to the, uh, to the neighborhood. Yeah, that makes so much sense. But uh, still, the interesting question to me is, what, you know, it's better to have a predictable enemy than an unpredictable friend, and this guy from North Korea is—he's predictable, but then he's unpredictable, and then he's predictable and he's unpredictable. At what point does he not understand that when he finally pulls the trigger, he and the rest of the country aren't going to be around much longer? And why would we waste humanity to that degree based on just one psychotic leader? Isn't there some right. way that we that we can curb him for the benefit? You know, the old cliche, it's better that one soul should perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief. Holy cow. What can we? What would you do if you were a commander-in-chief? Hey, I'm, I'm certain that if there was a way to, uh, uh, to get to this guy and have regime change in a way that would be, uh, uh, you know, that would, would limit uh, further escalation and, and stuff, man, that, that would be, that would certainly be worthy of some good deliberate planning if that could happen. But... But, you know, here's one thing that I would say about uh, North Korea's weapons program. They are, they're doing this weapons program, uh, and I may have mentioned this one of the times we've been together uh, in the past, but this weapons program is being done uh, the way an aggressive country does weapons programs. Um, you know, he keeps shooting his missiles, and, and one gets a little better. It, it achieves the next objective. It, uh, the next one achieves the next objective. He gets a little longer, he gets a little farther, he improves his tra trajectory, and he perfects the, the weapons system. And the United States, when we began our ICBM program, we were 0 for 13, but we kept shooting, you know, we kept shooting. Number 14 was a winner. And so we aggressively um, worked that program 
and it delivered for us both an ICBM force and a submarine-launched ballistic missile force. And so um, now we have a missile defense program where there's a big interval typically between our shots because they're so public that, um, you know, I, I'm concerned that, you know, parts of us are afraid of failure um, in such a public way. But, you know, developmental programs have that risk and failure uh, in some level is inherent in, the, in a weapons development program. So I, I cautiously say he is doing a very competent job doing weapons development uh, right in front of us, both with his weapon and the potential delivery system. And so, uh, and I believe that he has now wedded himself to these two programs in such a way that he might not even be able to survive if he were to backpedal on these, uh, you know, mm. domestically. I don't know if he could survive. So I think he has tied regime change to being able to say, at a minimum, I've got this, you know I've got this, now back off. Um, yeah, and until it, yeah. he has the, that capability... I think it's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to continue these tests. The challenge I think the world has and doesn't appreciate fully is that he'll probably be even higher maintenance when he has a weapon and a, a weaponizable weapon, um, and he can put those things together. Um, you know, then then you worry about this guy's stability in a very serious way. So it, it's difficult. You know, he's doing what a strong development program does, but when he gets it, um, he probably is still going to be extraordinarily high maintenance and maybe even more of a concern. I, I mean, uh, obviously it'll be more of a concern. I don't know what our threshold is and whether or not we um, can put in motion things that would um, perhaps risk uh, even a conventional attack on South Korea because, frankly, um, the destruction of the South Korean economy would, is not a regional problem. Um, you know, it's, it's lots of human beings, um, a pivotal economy for the world. Um, there's lots of complicating factors, um, you know, if, if this thing goes south in a really, uh, in a large way, in a large conventional way, uh, it, it gets to be really bad. And obviously, the, so, the unthinkable needs to be kept in the box as much as it can be so done. China, so China really needs to step it up because they're doing $40 billion a month in trade with the United States of America. $40 billion with a B I was reading. Yeah. And when we want to cut off their resources and close down the accounts in their banks, I read that you know their leadership starts to piss and moan now like, that's not right, we can't do that. But like you said, the only way... The only right thing to do is to turn this guy off, eliminate him. Otherwise, there's going to be total destruction there on that peninsula at some point in time, right? If not now, eventually, because once he gets his weapons and weaponizes his missiles, it's only a matter of time, you think, before he actually has to pull the trigger to save face, right? Well, I think that, I think, I don't know how, you know, this guy has proven to be unpredictable. And uh, cornered, I'm, I don't know how he reacts to that. And uh, and I, I um, you know, I, I hope that we continue to uh, perfect our missile defense capabilities. And you know, we've got capabilities in the Pacific, the limited capabilities that because uh, missile defense is a, a system of systems, and uh, the Navy's proven that it can shoot things down. And then we've got weapons that are in Alaska and California uh, that can also intercept things. But this is all very 
uh, you know, small scale, uh, I shouldn't say small scale, but full scale, but I mean, uh, you know, it is, uh, it is a competent system against a limited attack, and uh, you hope that uh, you're not going to have to uh, exercise that in any particular fashion. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I hazard to try to connect all the dots to where this challenges us to uh, employ our strategic weapons. I, um, you know, I, I, I have to continue to think of those as weapons of last resort. Um, so, uh, you know, it, I, I feel strongly that uh, we would respond in an extraordinarily devastating way um, should he um, uh, use one of those weapons. I think that that would be... Uh, that would be uh, horrible on both sides, but uh, uh, you know there there are thresholds that we will be willing to cross. I would guess, uh, given uh, you know extraordinary circumstances, extraordinary, extraordinary circumstances. What what the American public really needs to realize is that in World War II, we were pacifists. You know, Hitler started coming into power in the late 30s. And, you know, obviously when the war begins and they, 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 they roll into Austria and Poland and the, the list goes on and on and on, America refused to get involved because we were pacifists. No, that's not our fight. No, let's just be peacekeepers. No, let's just, you know, let's not compete. Let's give everybody a trophy and everything's wonderful. And I'm afraid that our country has fallen back to that pacifist mentality like, why should we get involved in a fight? I mean, I understand there's arguments on the floor of our Congress and Senate where these wingtips actually say we should not fund our global enterprise, our global strike capabilities. We should not update our nuclear capabilities and our nuclear arsenal. And they're actually voting against military funding. This is This has to be stopped. This is so absurd. And so as we wind down in the next couple of minutes, sir... I don't need to be passionate. I know you are. What advice do you give my listeners as voters in America? Why must we fund the military completely without people saying, well, what about funding our education? Yeah, we're not taking that off the table. What about funding our, our you know, our poverty? What about funding our this or that? Well, yeah, we agree with that. But our military cannot take a second place status any longer we only have a couple of minutes, sir. Please take us to, to the end of the show by saying what you would say as a retired two-star general in the United States Air Force. What must we do as citizens once we click off this radio show? Yeah, what we, and what we see today in 2017, I don't think we could have seen with the same clarity on 9-11. On nine, right after 9-11, we realized that small teams of lethal Americans, extraordinarily well-trained and equipped, um, with great air power <laughs> also, uh, uh, and, and all of our services needed to be engaged in a way because uh, nuclear weapons are not, uh, and we never said they were, able to deter all, uh, to cover all vulnerabilities to our, our nation, our values, and our national security interests. And it would, re- it would require an extraordinarily, extraordinary range of capabilities in order to defend our interests for sure. But what we can see clearly today that uh, even though uh, that we turned the page on the Obama administration, um, what we were seeing, hoping for a reset with China, we almost were looking like we were wishing away our strategic capabilities, that if we lead, they will follow. And there was no intention for that. So Iran uh, needed to be uh, stopped in its tracks 
and it's debatable how effective we are. The uh, North Koreans have marched on with their program and are where they are today. And then Russia leverages its nuclear capability and threatens a variety of customer or people in order for them to move into eastern Ukraine and to take Crimea and now to pressure Western Europe. So, um, you know, it takes a broad range of capabilities, and now it's requiring a lot of investment for our strategic recapitalization um, because we've neglected to do that. Extremely effective today. Um, don't challenge us. We can do everything we say we can do. But over the next decade and a half, it's going to require national commitment to ensure that these are recapitalized so we can sustain on all fronts uh, the, the national security capabilities that the nation requires. Thank you, sir. Right on time. This is Dan Clark, VoiceAmerica.com, the Influencers Channel. Our guest has been retired two-star Air Force General Don Alston. An extraordinary patriot, an extraordinary American, an extraordinary human being, one of my great friends and my heroes. I love you so much, and I know my listeners have been in awe for the last hour listening to your your chronicling of why we're in the, the place we are now, but with resiliency and hope and belief in the American uh, dream, we can fight back, and we always have, and we always will. So join us next week. Get your friends and family members. Remember our military servicemen and women in your prayers. And let's pray to God that our, our, our national leaders make the right choices to keep us safe, but most significantly free. Until next week, this is Dan Clark signing off. Thanks, General. I love you. I honor you. And we'll talk off air. Thanks, Dan. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye, you too. Thanks for being part of the show. Be sure to join Dan Clark next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, for another edition of The Art of Significance on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Remember, you too can achieve the level beyond success.